Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. All right, Professor, hit it. All right, I hope all y'all are doing okay. This is one of the most uh, top 10 disturbing chapters in the Bible, I'm certain of that. And... Uh, there are lots of Proverbs I could have chosen, but I really wanted to be a little bit more upbeat. So is, there, is it possible to take some upbeat uh, material from this? So today's key Proverb that I'm going to focus on is chapter 15, 14 of Proverbs. So 15, 14. And it says, the discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. So discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. Now, believe it or not, the second half of that verse is about meekness. And stay tuned. I'll explain that when we get to the end of my little spiel here. You perhaps have heard of the law of unintended consequences. That is when things don't turn out the way you intended. And sometimes we wind up doing more harm than good. Uh, or sometimes it's also possible to wind up doing more good than we planned. So let me give you a little illustration. There's a little remote island about 900 and some miles south of New Zealand. It's absolutely remote. There's nothing else around it. Very tiny island, very desolate. All that lived there for years and years were fur seals. That was one of their habitats. And then all sorts of these remote uh, uh, rare birds. Now, eventually sailors who were doing their, uh, their voyages up around uh, South America, then up into the Pacific, they discovered this island and they discovered it was rich with the fur seals and so it became a place where they would hunt down these seals. Now, unfortunately, in those days, it wasn't just sailors on those boats that came, there were also rats. And these stowaway rats would disembark and before they got to Phoenix, they did what rats do, they multiplied greatly. Now, the sailors realized they needed to keep the rat population down, so wisdom suggested that let's introduce cats to the island to hunt down the rats. Sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Anyways, also to give a steady food supply to the sailors who would come on a regular basis, they also introduced rabbits that they could hunt. And you know what rabbits can do. So what happened was cats decimated the rare bird population. By the year 2000, the island's cats, however, they, after a program of eradication, the cats were almost totally uh, eradicated. But guess what? The rabbit's main predator was now gone, and that population exploded. And in a short time, the rabbits consumed 40% of the island's vegetation. Now, those of you who know your uh, ecology knows what, know what happens when vegetation disappears. Erosion escalates. And so major erosion did happen. And the bottom line was this island was de, uh, determined to be an ecological meltdown, all because of some well-intended consequences. It did seem like a good idea at the time. Well, we've all been there one time or another, haven't we? Where even good intentions leave us winding up in a ditch. Um, I'm conscious of my time. I'm going to tell a quick story. When I was a, a young pastor, uh, Back in the day, I was a rookie pastor and hobnobbing with the people after the morning service. And so I wanted to be friendly and I went up to a young couple and I 
not going to mention her name in case she watches one day, but I just mentioned to her, I says, so when is the baby due? Well, she glared at me and she said the baby was born two weeks ago. Oh. So unintended consequences. I, uh, yeah, that was a rather embarrassing moment. And even to this day, uh, I blush a little bit over that, that little bit of a meltdown. So poor choices. What have we seen in Shannon's study so far? Well, we see that David never intended to get Bathsheba pregnant. His genius plan to get Uriah home to cover up for that pregnancy didn't foresee Uriah's self-denial and his great sense of duty as a soldier. David later never intended for that baby to die. David never intended for his sons, whom he loved apparently well, but not very wisely. He never intended for them to be such narcissistic train wrecks. The mouth of a fool feeds on folly. An appetite, the appetite of a fool. And that imagery is all encompassing as it covers any form of hunger that our humanity presents. The Apostle Paul had a stern rebuke for the Corinthians who argued for a theology of permissiveness based on so-called freedom and also based on the minor league rationale that went this way. Hey, God created us with our appetites, therefore, let's go for it. Everything is permissible for me. Hey, Brian, stop for just a second. Yep. You got it, Kay? Okay, go ahead. All right. So back to what the, uh, the rationale. God created us with appetites. We can therefore satisfy them however we want. Everything is permissible for me. Paul quotes them there, but he responds to it. And another one of their quotations in Corinthians was food for the stomach and the stomach for food. So those were two of the libertine credos that they embraced. But Paul quickly decimates their faulty and dangerous theology. So the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. Now, again, reminder of the quick Proverbs 101 point that we've made before. Every proverb is a mirror. And so let's consider the possibility that if we look long enough, honestly enough, with the gift of self-awareness, what are we going to see? We're going to see something of ourselves in this proverb. And so while it is true that David fed on folly and that Amnon didn't just feed on Tamar's baking, we must consider a takeaway question, and it's this. How much folly is in my own diet? We aren't to use or see Proverbs merely as a thou shalt not regarding adultery and murder and rape and fratricide and inciting rebellion against one's father. We've all used the expression, whoa, that was time consuming. Time consuming, consumption, a diet term. And so the question is, what consumes your time? What consumes my time? What consumes my energies? Another way of putting it is what passions consume you? And did you notice the subtle flip there? It's not what am I consuming, but now it's what is consuming me? Because that which I consume consumes me. Jesus said it a little differently. He said this, whoever wants to save their life has to do what? Lose it. What shall it profit a person if they pamper their life, if they feed their appetites, but lose their own soul? So again, the takeaway question, how much folly is in my diet? Now, if you had a spiritual trainer follow you around like Shannon does every week, being an impartial observer, taking inventory of all those 15-minute slots that make up your days, what would the resultant time budget reveal? Or to put it differently, we all have only so many energy pellets to use per day. 
Some of us may have more energy pellets than others, but that's irrelevant because it's how I use mine. We expend energy pellets in legitimate pursuits. God is fine with that. We expend energy in relationships. Some of them are legit. Perhaps some are unwise, and maybe some are downright foolish ones. And so confession. I'm a recovering fool. I'm prone to folly, Lord, I feel it. And isn't there a second law of spiritual thermodynamics that says, when left unattended, one's spiritual life will degrade. Entropy will rule unless we re-energize through spiritual exercises. And one of those exercises is self-denial. Without self-denial, one promotes chaos. And boy, did we see chaos in David's palace. The mouth of a fool feeds on folly. That's a spiritual principle. It's not a good one, but it's a principle nonetheless. Now consider this statement. Because I can, I will. We live in a because-I-can culture. In fact, advertising agencies have used that concept forever in a variety of ways to do what? To stimulate your appetite, to encourage you. Come along with us. You deserve a break today. It'll be good. The plunder will be sweet. Because I can, I will. Because David could, he did. Because Amnon could, he did. Because Absalom did, could, he did that as well. You see, what we tend to be less aware of is that the self-indulgence of the because-I-can philosophy has repercussions, unintended consequences, that meant there were victims who couldn't. Mm. Because-I-can, others can't. That is, one person's appetite can result in another person's starvation. Amnon's outrageous lack of self-denial resulted in a catastrophic denial of Tamar's honor, her dignity, her future well-being, and her prospects as a wife and a mother. So remember at the outset, I said that 14b was about meekness. Meekness defined this way is strength under control. In other words, just because I can doesn't mean I will. One of the greatest superpowers known to mankind is the strength to deny oneself. I want a discerning heart to consider the consequences of my own because I can. You see, my choices in the now don't only affect others, they affect the future me as well. Mm. Wisdom refuses to mortgage one's future well-being in order to feed on folly. I want a heart after God's heart, a heart that is informed by God's wisdom, by his word, to help me determine proper boundaries for myself. You see, self-denial which is God's way, was never about denying us an abundant, full life. In fact, it was to give us an awesome, fulfilling life. We know that, a life of contentment. Wisdom is the secret of learning contentment and realizing that you can thrive in God's contentment through Christ, who gives you the strength, who gives you the energy pellets to do so. And so last thing I want to say, unintended consequences are also those times when we do more good than we intended. And that's what I want to leave you with. Do the right thing. Sow the right seed. Invest wisely. You know, the tongue has the power of life, not just the power of death. It says those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs 15, 23. I love this one. It's one of my favorite Proverbs. A person finds joy in giving an apt reply. And how good is a timely word. How good is a timely word? Mm -hmm. 
A kind word, as all of us probably know from experience, has the ability to elevate a person's spirit and to stick with them for the rest of their lives, even though the speaker of those words never realized it. Instead of reckless words that can ravage someone's innocence and can banish a vulnerable person to a lifetime of insecurity and shame, words of life can reset someone else's course toward a changed full life. Out of the abundance, the heart speaks. Your diet determines your menu. Watch your diet, watch what you serve up for others, and watch the flourishing harvest come. Mm. I'm done. So good. Um, two things that stick out to me because I remember hearing them as a young person and it just stayed with me. And that was your comment of just because we can doesn't mean we should. And I just, I've used that wisdom several times when I was analyzing choices. Um, I can do that. I'm free to do that, but should I? I think that's awesome. And I love um, the idea of meekness. Another way I heard it once is meekness is, and it might've been Jordan Peterson. I can't remember who said it, but meekness is basically having the sword, but keeping it in the sheath. Yeah, that's good. You know, um, and so I think that's amazing. And blessed are the meek for what? They shall. They shall inherit the earth. That's that's who I'm going to use. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just wonder if when we choose that controlled strength, what God can mm -hmm. do through us. And then I love how that is synonymous with that diet, with that um self-denial all that goes together just because we can doesn't mean you know doesn't mean we should and um and i also love what you said about um our current choices don't just affect everyone else but they affect the future me mm -hmm. boy can i say an amen to that one so um so good all right so what we're gonna do gals is we're gonna now we're gonna go through and Brian, anytime you want to break in, because I know we uh, love talking about these stories together. So if you have, I haven't talked to you a whole lot today. So if you have a thought, jump in. But we're going to literally walk through 2 Samuel chapter 13. So if you have that in front of you, um, today what I'm going to do is I'm going to do what I do best. And I'm going to tell this story like I see it. Okay. Um, so I'm going to try to bring it alive. And um, see application where I can. Um, and then at the end of our time together, I'm gonna give you some announcements and I'm also gonna do some fun stuff because I wanna give away some stuff. So yes. um, yeah, I, Brian, I know you always want stuff. So uh, let's dig in, all right? Chapter 13 says, in the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. So right away, you know that Amnon has fallen in love with his half-sister. And it says that she is very beautiful. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Well, 
First off, Jonadab is who? This is a whole family affair. You see in this situation, no pun intended. Um, Jonadab is Amnon's cousin, okay? And it says that he is his advisor. It might say his companion in your scripture, um, his friend. But here he is hanging out with his cousin, Jonadab. Now, I could not help but imagine what he was like. So if you read through that and you started thinking, okay, what is Jonadab like? So what would it be like to be the cousin of the heir to the throne? Your uncle is the king. And so I started thinking about him and I just wondered, was he always around the power of royalty, but he never possessed it? Uh, do you think he was slightly entitled, deserved, feeling like he deserved more? or having to take what he wanted? What would it be like to have privilege without responsibility? He's not the next heir. Was he used to sucking off of Amnon and encouraging his revelry? Do you think he enjoyed being the um, companion of the prince? So let your mind think about these young men who have all kinds of power and wealth and entitlement and here they are together. And I just wonder if they had really spent a lifetime together of living it up. And I'm just wondering if Jonadab is a little bit miffed because Amnon is spoiling the mood. Are you with me? And so now every time he comes into his presence, he is inquiring and he's basically saying, dude, what the heck is wrong with you? Why do you look like a hot stinking mess every time I walk in this room? What is this mood? What is perplexing you? Um, and so this desire for his sister is so intense, y'all. He's not getting any sleep. He's looking haggard. And so instead of turning away from it, he is enjoying this whole um, situation in his mind. He is fantasizing over him being with his sister. Um, I think it's interesting that when I think about Jonadab as a friend or companion, um, I can't help but think of bad company corrupts good morals, right? So was Jonadab a yes man that was used to giving Amnon whatever he wanted? Because if whatever was given to Amnon, Jonadab possibly got the what? The scraps. And so he's like, my goodness, what is going on? What is this mood? It says that he was very shrewd, which that word also means wise, but I wouldn't consider him wise in the things of the Lord, but wise in the things of what? The world. He's shrewd. Listen, if you want to get something done, you ask Jonadab because he has no qualms about it. He's going to go in there and he's going to figure out how to get you what you want. And if you are the prince or the king, you know, maybe that is a good quality or maybe not in your right hand man. That what you speak, he will accomplish, no questions asked. And so he tells Jonadab what his problem is. Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar my brother Absalom's sister. Interesting. He says, okay, Jonadab, here's his advice. Go to bed 
and pretend to be ill. <laughs> well, wouldn't be much of a pretending. It seems like he's ill already, right? He says, so go to bed and pretend that you're ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. Wow. Jonadab, it doesn't take him long to have a plan. Why? Well, has he, I don't know. Has he tried this before? Has this plan worked for him? And so right away, he is already thinking, how can I devise a plan to get my prince exactly what he wants? He is a yes man. So what kind of true friend is he? I mean, honestly, what in the world can this bring Amnon other than destruction? So if you see your friend walking down the path to destruction, as a friend, do you pave the way? Or do you do all you can in love to uh, say, hey, wake up. Just because you can, what? Does it mean you should? Because this is the road to destruction. But instead, he's giving him uh, all the road signs to get what he wants. And so he gives him this plan. And uh, I wrote, I think this plan shows that don't, Jonadab's wisdom is as perverse as Amnon's love. I think Jonadab's wisdom is as perverse as Amnon's so-called love. So Jonadab would help Amnon get what he wants, right? Why? His whole goal is to get this prince out of his funk. Why? Well, this whole thing is spoiling the mood. And not to mention the fact, wouldn't it be great uh, to have a little secret card to play later on when this heir becomes what? King. So he's doing all of he all he can. He's living off of this prince. He's enjoying all kinds of power without responsibility. And he is the go-to man that is going to get this prince anything he needs um, because he is securing his own position of power. And it is great to always have a card to play in the end. This is nothing but power, right? This is not friendship, true companion. This is not a good friend. Um, this is two men, in my opinion, feeding off each other. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread. I would love to know what that special bread is. I don't know what the special bread is. You can research it. Some will say it is um, a particular bread in the shape of this or that, and it has healing herbs and all of those things. I don't know. When we show up, when you go to a dinner, don't people ask you to bring some special uh, thing that you're known for cooking? Oh, bring that corn casserole or bring that layer dip or bring that. But I find it interesting. We're going to talk about this in a minute that he wanted her to make bread. Um, so he says, I want her to come and make that special bread in my sight that I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. 
Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come to bed with me, my sister. So let's break this down. What was the plan? He would play sick. All right. And then we see that David comes to check on him. I find this interesting. Jonadab knew that David would come check on Amnon. He knew that David would come check on this heir to the throne. So can we assume maybe he was just a little coddled? Do you think that's too great of an assumption? Maybe he was just a little bit entitled. Um, and with that, I wonder what his brothers thought of him. I just sat back uh, today outside and I just thought about that. This whole atmosphere with Amnon and Jonadab and what they were like. And I just wonder with all the different wives and sons, what all the sons thought about this heir to the throne and I can imagine they've heard he is sick. And so David comes to check on the air. And um, I especially wonder what Absalom thought of him. And we're going to discuss that a little bit. But you know what I think is especially sad? Is that when we look through this entire story, we're going to find out that David came to check on Amnon. But he never, we see in scripture anyway, we never see him check on Tamar. It just breaks your heart. You wonder why. And so he comes in and he checks on him. And Amnon says, I'm too sick to eat. But maybe if you send Tamar, I can eat some of her special bread. Oh, David seems oblivious. Don't you just want to smack him? Am I the only one? I know that we are judging him thousands of years later. And I know we don't have a right because we're not sitting there. But it really is hard for me not to want to smack him upside the head and go, for real, you have been in this situation. Why in the world is he asking for his sister to come make this special bread, right? And it's so easy to look back and question um, after the fact. But I don't know why he can't see it. I mean, I'm wondering, like, is he oblivious because he is preoccupied by war? Like big things are going on in the empire. Have you ever been preoccupied with some big stinking things in your life? And then all of a sudden you realize you missed something that was right in front of your eyes? Have you ever been sidetracked with one child knowing the wheels were falling off and you were really focused on one kid knowing they're in a really hard time of life and while you were so focused the one way you missed something with the other? I don't know. Some people speculate the timing of David and Bathsheba. When you read that, maybe he was preoccupied with her. Good Lord, he had enough women to be preoccupied with. And think about the fact that, I mean, do you understand the focus that we have to um, take care of one family? Do you know how many women he had? How many different things he had pulling at him? So not to make excuses, I still want to smack him. But I just wonder, like, how do you not see this? But he doesn't. He seems to be completely unaware. Shannon, can I? Please. Inter 
it's I wonder that too like how could he have been fooled by Amnon's act and then it just hit me David was the master drama queen as well remember when he faked insanity <laughs> yeah. he was convincing you wonder well the apple doesn't fall far from the tree does it no so how yeah so how good was Amnon right yeah. yep. with the help of Jonadab and um and listen I'd be lying if I said that my kids weren't pretty good at it too and the fact that how many times have they pulled one over on me where I completely thought no way like really and then later on you you look back and you think seriously Shannon how did you not see that you tried it you know you went there how did you not see that so I know it's so easy to judge um so David sends for Tamar to cook her bread. Um, I find this interesting because as I'm pondering this, I think, hmm, that's interesting that he wanted bread because bread takes a long time to prepare. And so if you can imagine, he's laying, he is already lusting over her. How long has he been watching her? How long has he been dreaming of her? And now he has prime opportunity to sit and watch her put a dough together um, and have time to let it rise, which meant she spent some time there. And the fact that she rolls it out and she forms it, and to be quite honest, if you are delirious with lust, I think the whole thing, if I'm not being inappropriate, could be a very sensual thing to watch. I kept thinking about Demi Moore in the movie Ghost and how, how the whole sensual thing of forming the the pot and the clay. And I'm just wondering, you know, if this whole idea of her sticking around and uh, making bread just added to the whole fantasy. Um, it says that he, um, he sent everyone away except Tamar. Does this remind you of any story in the Old Testament? See, I want you to start picking up on patterns and similarities because a lot of you that I'm looking at, I've been teaching you for a long time. So you know these stories. Do you know anybody else who sent the servants away as they had a, an idea to, um, you know, seduce someone? How about Potiphar's wife? Do you remember that? Is it may, I, you got to shake your heads at me because then I can see you. All right. And so you just see this going on. And as we're reading it, we're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I know what is about to happen. This is a stinking trap. This is exactly what Potiphar did to Joseph. Run, Tamar, run, Forrest, right? But look at our site is so much easier, right? So he sends all the servants away. And uh, this is not going to be good. I have no idea what Tamar was thinking. But let me ask you this. He was her brother. I mean, often, why do you think people are um, assaulted by people they know? Because there's a trust that should have been there. And they didn't see it coming because it should have never been coming. And so uh, I think it's interesting how sometimes we read this and even now we want to accuse the victim like, how did you not see this coming? Run, Tamar, run. That's not our place. This was her brother. She didn't see it coming. He had, he was the prince. He asked everyone to leave. He was sick. They believed him. This was a whole laid out trap for this naive girl who had no experience. And she comes in 
and she brings him bread. And then he asks her to feed him. Ugh, what a creep, right? Does anybody else feel that way? Like he wanted her close, right there where he could reach out, same as Potiphar's wife. She literally, because Joseph would not um, give in to her desires, she literally reached out and grabbed to take what did not belong to her. And that's exactly what Amnon is doing. He gets her close, he pulls her in, and then he reaches out and he grabs her. And uh, I stopped there in my notes and I went, I actually think he's lost his mind. I actually think that he is completely lost in a fantasy. He is convinced that this is going to happen. He is convinced that she might actually be willing. He's convinced that he might get away with this thing. I mean, he has to be convinced of that, or why would he be doing that? Or he hasn't thought any further. He literally can, is convinced that this may just be a fling, like maybe he's going to get a hall pass. He is completely lost in his fantasy. Now, does this make sense? Can we apply this today? That a fantasy has gone on so long in your mind and you desire something so bad that you have actually convinced yourself that if you gratify that urge, nothing will happen, no one will know, no one will be the wiser, it will not have a cost, it's going to happen. How can we be so short-sighted in our lust at that moment? I think it's easier than you think. He's had a whole lot of time to create this fantasy in his mind. And where, does, where do our choices begin? It is not a very far journey from our mind to our hands. Just remember that. And so the whole deal is to be very careful with our thought life because it's private. Nobody can see your thoughts, but your thoughts don't typically stay thoughts. Your thoughts end up becoming word and action. And uh, sometimes you look back, I don't know about you, but do you ever look back at some of the choices you made and thought, how could I have been so stupid? Honestly, am I the only one? Because y'all never shake your head at me. How could I have been so stupid? How did I think I would eat of that rotten fruit and not get sick? I don't know how I thought that. But he is lost in this fantasy. So he makes his advance and she denies him. Um, something I think he wasn't used to. What do you think? I don't think Amnon got denied of much, do you? This heir apparent to the throne, do you think he got denied of much? And can I ask you, do you think he ever saw his dad get denied of much? No. And do you not think he absolutely knew and the other sons knew what had happened with Bathsheba? Do you not think they knew that? The things that had happened with their father, the fact that when he saw something, he took it. And I don't find it, I, I, I well, I find it interesting that uh, Tamar is described in the same way as Bathsheba, that she was very, very beautiful. Um, in verse thir or 12, she says this, no, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. 
Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Unbelievable. Listen, doesn't this remind you? I mean, I can just see this in my mind as a movie. She is in grave danger. And this woman is sharp. She is doing everything she can to wake him up from his fantasy. She's like, you're not thinking straight. You have been overcome with lust and desire. And she immediately says, listen, this thing you are doing is wicked. Amnon, don't be deceived. Wake up. This is a wicked action. This action is so considered as wickedness in Israel. What is she saying? This is against the law. They were half siblings, too close for any kind of behavior like this. And she's saying it's wrong. Then she goes on to say, this would be, well, actually in that, what she's actually saying is that this would be folly in Israel. Brian, do you have that as a, that this is, this is folly in Israel. And I, I read something that said basically that a sin like that, this folly in Israel is talking about a crime that would affect the entire community. And that if there was a crime that affected the entire community, that the ramifications of that could be death. And so I think she's trying to wake him up to see this. Listen, this is big time, what you're about to do. Unintended consequences. There you go. Yeah. And then she begs him to consider her. She says, think about what you're doing to me. I mean, this young woman was walking around in a gown given by her dad, the king, that represented her virginity as a princess. Um, the fact that she was a virgin, um, that she was, as she grew, that she would be someone's uh, bride. She would be married to some form of royalty. And she is thinking, she's begging him, think of me. Like she is begging for any kind of love, consideration, which he says he loves her, right? Um, think of me and what you will do. You will disgrace me. In other words, you will deflower me. You will make me unmarriable. I will not have a royal marriage. I will not have any status or security. I will not have a family. You say you love me. Look at what you're doing to me. Did she get through? No, she didn't get through. So guess what she tries next? Okay, so the fact that, hey, this thing is wicked, it's evil, it's folly in Israel. Bottom line, it's you could die. Um, and look what you're doing to me. If all of that is not working, then she talks to the narcissist right where it's important, him. Okay, if you don't care about the community of Israel and you don't care about me, your half-sister, maybe you care enough about you. And so she then says, she talks to him about his reputation. She said, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. I mean, honestly, if you don't care about anybody else and you don't care about me, 
and you won't at least care about you. Look what this is going to do to your reputation, the next king. And then that's still not working. So then, man, she does what we probably all would do. We start uh, making promises or suggestions that you know what? It's not going to happen. I don't think for one minute David would have given her in marriage to Amnon. Um, but what is she trying to do? Stall. Get out of the situation. Do whatever she can. Tell him anything he wants to hear as long as he will stop this behavior and she can leave. And the problem is none of it worked. Why? He was too intent on getting what his, he wanted. He was so used to gratifying his own appetite that everything became an object for his appetite. And he did not have one ounce of self-denial in his diet, to be quite honest. When we are used to always gratifying our appetite, what comes of us? Or how about the fact of when we allow our children to have everything their appetite wants, what are we creating in them? It goes on to verse 15. It says, then Amnon hated her. Does this just kill y'all right here? It says, then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Oh, if you didn't like him before, you really don't like him now. He says, get up and get out. No, she said to him, Send me, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. Wow. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. I'm going to tell you what, he better be glad I was not her mother. Because if that happened, um, people would be saying, oh, what happened to your mother? Wasn't she in ministry? Oh, yeah, she's still doing ministry. She's doing prison ministry 24-7. Because I would be locked up. Because I'm going to tell you what, this redneck, I cannot imagine putting up with such a thing. So anyway, just thought I needed to say that. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe. I've, I've talked to you about that a little bit. For this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Wow. Wow, that's just symbolic of what happened in her guts, right? Just mm, brokenness. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. So he raped her. And it says that he immediately hated her. And let me tell you why. I think it is because she became a mirror to his own wickedness. What was once something that he thought would gratify, now when he looked at her, all she was was a reminder of how wicked he was. The very thing that he thought would gratify him, he came to despise. You know what I thought of? Doesn't it remind you a little bit of Sarah and Hagar? Remember? 
the very thing that Sarah couldn't let go of, the very thing that she thought would solve all the problems, the very thing. And listen, I know how women are. We're like a bulldog with a bone when we get an idea, right? This is it. This is the best idea. This is going to solve everything. This is going to be wonderful. And so she convinces Abraham to sleep with Hagar. And then what happens? The very thing that she thought would gratify them and bring what they wanted is the very thing that she turned around and despised. And to be quite honest, both Amnon and Sarah, through the object of their hatred, threw them out, got rid of them. So not only do you see Hagar and uh, Tamar right here as the victims, not only were they injured once, they were injured twice. Because at that point, they're thrown out like the trash. Get up and go, he said. She refused, begging him that this was even more wrong than the rape. Why? Well, because, listen, anybody can do something in uh, the stupor of passion. But now, did y'all just hear my dog bark? Oh, my word, Thunderbird. Um, he's my protector. That's Winston. Um, so he was in this stupor of passion. Well, now he is awoken to what he has done. He has an opportunity, right? To in some way get it right. Well, what would that be? Well, I'm not sure, but according to the law, if a woman was raped, the man had an opportunity, um, to, I don't know if the words make up for it or have restitution, um, that he would pay 50 shekels and marry her. All right. So he was fined and then he would marry her to secure her future. And so whether or not that's what she was talking about, she's saying now you are disgracing me even more because you're not even trying to make it right. You've used me up and now you're throwing me out on the street so that my disgrace is public. Um, instead, he doesn't listen. He calls his servant over to literally drag her out and shut the door behind her and lock the door. Do you know what I thought of? This is even, and by me telling you that, by the way, um, that he would offer 50 shekels and offer to marry her. Do you remember Shechem when I taught you Genesis? Do you remember that? Jacob and his boys, okay, are coming back from Laban. Shake your head, yes, if you kind of know this story. Jacob has been with Laban, okay, and he's married Rachel and Leah and the two, Bilhah and Zilpah, and he has his sons, and they're coming back. And they stop in Shechem, right, instead of coming on back. And do you remember the story about his daughter, Dinah? The prince of Shechem takes the daughter of Jacob, Dinah, and he either, depending on your interpretation, rapes her or seduces her and basically deflowers her. But then what does he do? It says he loves her all the more. He goes to Jacob, now the boys are out in the field, and he says to Jacob, listen, name your price. So he didn't really, I mean, it wasn't about 50 shekels for him. He wouldn't have known that law anyway, but he's like, name your bride price, name it. She's worth it, I'll pay it. I want to marry her. Isn't it sad when you think about 
this prince at Shechem of this pagan uh, people compared to God's nation, this next prince, the son of David, who does this to his own sister and does not even offer to pay or to marry, but instead throws her out in the street and locks the door behind him. And the fact that even with Shechem, even when he offers to pay uh, any price for Dinah and to take her in marriage, guess what happens to him anyway? Do you remember? The brothers, Jacob's sons, they go in, convince them to be circumcised because they've convinced them they're going to join them as a nation. And so these adult men get circumcised. And then on the third day, when they can hardly move because their body is healing, the sons, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, go in there and annihilate every man in Shechem. They kill them all. So not only did the prince of Shechem pay for the rape uh, or dishonor of Dinah, but everybody else in that place paid as well. And look at what is happening here. Here you have this prince rape his own sister, offer nothing in return, throw her in the street, lock the door behind her, and she goes off mourning. But I'm going to tell you, he should have remembered the story because it's going to come back to him. Her brother Absalom said to her, because now she is going through the street. Can you imagine this princess? She has ripped her garment, symbolizing her status and her purity. She has put ash on her head. She is crying out loud. Her world will never be the same. And this is all in public. And it says that she goes to Absalom's house because why? Would you go to the palace? No, she goes to her brother's home. And then we hear this in verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, has that, Am has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Oh, okay. Mm. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard all this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Wow. Do you find it interesting that this, air, this section starts off that Absalom asked if it was Amnon? That, that start, her brother Absalom said to her, without any other, just by looking at her and what happened to her, look what he assumes. He's like, have, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Did Amnon do this to you? That was his very first question. I just wonder, I have a lot of questions. I have no answers. So I'm just going to give you stuff to ponder too. Did he know she went there? Had he heard that? Had he noticed something about him and how he looked at his sister? Had he noticed something in Amnon's eye and how he looked at his sister? I would bet he definitely knew his character. I think Absalom knew the character of Amnon. He didn't seem to question her story at all. Do you notice that? He took her at her word. He never questioned. When she said yes, 
he believed her 100%. Why? Well, possibly because his character showed that, yeah, this is absolutely possible in the character of Amnon. And my question is, if he questioned Amnon's character, why didn't David? Why didn't David notice? Why didn't he wonder about Amnon's request? What was he preoccupied with? But once again, it's always easy to ask questions after the event, isn't it? Have you ever been in a situation and you look back later and you have all like, why this? Why didn't I see? Why didn't I do this? Why did they do this? It's easy to question after. Absalom's response honestly hurts my heart. Does it anybody else's? It hurts me. I'm going to tell you the positive things about him. And man, I'm going to tell you what, this next section is better than any uh, series you could watch on television, what is happening here. Uh, I think Absalom meant well. I think he loves his sister. I think he cares for her. Um, I think he was enraged because I think Absalom was loyal to his family. And I think he seems to be quite the protector. Um, you know that he cares for her because he took her in. And as we read the story, you're going to see that he took her in and he continued to care for her. And even later when he had children, he named his daughter after her, who the Bible says was also a very beautiful young woman. But he tells her something that just breaks my heart. Did y'all catch it? He says, this is basically, he says, this is a family matter. It is private and you need to keep it private. Don't take it to heart. What? Don't take it to heart? Like, you know, just, just hush, just keep it on the down low. Don't talk about it. Don't broadcast it. Just brush it under. Uh, I know it's not your fault. Don't take it to heart. Don't let it, uh, don't let it impact you. Are you serious? How often do you think women hear that today? This is a family matter. Let's just keep it private. It doesn't need to be public. Why? Because we care more about image than we care about your heart. We care more about image than we care about what actually happened to you. Oh, honey, don't let it affect you. You just move on, right? Just move on. And what do we know? That does not work. And we end up reading that she becomes a desolate woman. Um, and we're gonna see what that means. Um, the only outward thing that we are told right here, you're gonna see this, is that Absalom did not speak to his brother for two years. It says he did not say anything positive nor negative. He just didn't speak. Probably didn't see him often. Um, he didn't speak to him for two years. But still, if I was Tamar, because we're going to look and see what David did. I mean, Absalom's upset. He's telling her not to take it to heart, keep it quiet. But yet she's not seeing any repercussions happening to Amnon. She just knows that Absalom's not talking. But I'm going to tell you what, he may not have been talking for two years, but what do you think he was doing? I think he was plotting and he was planning. 
I think he was thinking you this entire time. I think he was seething. You spoiled brat. You heir that I have been watching you entitled, spoiled, selfish man. The fact that you think you can disrespect my family, my mother, can you imagine all these mothers, all these sons with different mothers uh, in the kingdom? Can you imagine what went on in that harem? The fact that you would disrespect my mother's family. They were Aramean, remember? This was actually a royal family. His grandfather, Absalom's grandfather, was the king of Gesher. This was a political marriage, if you remember. And he's saying, and you have treated us this way? Ho, ho, buddy, you just wait. And I think he was seething. Um, but we don't see him do anything yet for two years. But what about David? What does it say about David? I'm almost done, and then I'm going to talk to y'all for a minute. It said he was stinking angry, right? But what the heck did he do? A big fat nothing. That's what he did, right? He did nothing. I mean, what good was it for him to be angry when he wasn't going to do anything about it? It reminds me of parents that do nothing but yell and scream, but they never bring down the hammer, right? After a while, what? What does the yelling and screaming mean? Not a dang thing, right? And so here he is, but he did nothing. I started, huh? Interrupt just one point. Yeah. Notice the narrator calls him King David here, mm. which is a detail that we would often gloss over because he's not called King David very much. He's called David. And the idea here is, okay, will the king step up to the plate? Yeah. And it says in Proverbs, win all, all, all evil with his eyes. And that he can what? Say that again. Well, they, they use the expression in Proverbs, a king will winnow out all evil with his eyes. Well, and what do we know? We're going to see in the next scene, and, we're gonna, and we saw before, um, the reason Nathan came with the story about the sheep mm -hmm. is because David did have the potential to make judgments that were, I mean, that was the judgment of the land. He was the king, yeah. right? And we're going to see that again. So that is, that's a great insight. Um, I started thinking about what could he have done? Well, I guess he could have enforced the 50 shekel in the marriage. <laughs> but then when I think about that, you know, as the princess, but I'm thinking from an American point of view in 2020, and I'd be like 50 shekels, right? I mean, I don't know. But yet he would have been forced into the marriage. I don't know if Dave would, would have ever done that. But she could have then had some kind of security, I guess, or life. I don't know what David could have done. Um, but I just wonder if his own guilt kept him from doing stuff. I wonder if his own guilt kept him from making a judgment. I wonder if this little uh, thing was a little too close to home and a reminder of his own sin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I also wonder, like, did he sympathize with what a beautiful woman can do to a man. Um, and I also wonder that if he had have done something, would Amnon have said to him, what right do you have? What right do you have to judge me? Look at what you did. And I really want to know why he never stink and visited Tamar. 
I want to know why he never went, the scripture says, and visited that. But I will tell you this. I know, I just feel in my gut that Absalom resented this like no other. The fact that David would not stand up, would not do anything to defend his mother, his sister, and his family. And I think that grievance stuck in his gut I don't think he was just mad at Amnon. I think all of this resentment was building up towards his father as well. And we're going to see how down the road that is going to explode. And so we're going to end in verse 23 because we're going to see that two years later, Absalom is going to take care of business when it comes to Amnon. And we're going to see what happens. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.